Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, I'm excited to interview Mrs. Beth Murphy with Sweet Southern Bees, LLC, and she is out of High Springs, Florida. Uh, Beth actually is a very good personal friend of mine, so I'm very excited to have her on the episode today. Thank you so much, Beth, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited because we're talking about your involvement in farmers markets because I'm friends with you on Facebook. Um, you know, I'm friends with your husband and he's a diver and and I'm just so excited to see your posts when you go to the farmers market every week. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your beekeeping journey? Yeah, I had always had sort of a fanciful notion about becoming a beekeeper, but life was just not conducive um, until 2014. And I had signed up for IFAS notifications uh, to tell me about the IFAS classes that were available to the public and in pops a notice about a one-day beekeeping course. So uh, without telling Jerry, my husband, I signed us both up and uh, we went and it was amazing. I, I did not read any of the disclaimers about the class. I was completely unprepared. I actually went in a sundress and flip-flops. I was just not, not in, uh, in good shape to be out there handling the bees, but nonetheless, the gal handed me a frame of bees and I was so enthralled with what was happening on that frame that I was just immediately hooked. So I, of course, went home, posted about it on Facebook, and uh, the wife of a dear friend of mine from college saw it and shared it with my friend, whose name is Tom, who's actually my beekeeping mentor. And he, um, having been a beekeeper for about 10 years, decided that he was going to expedite my journey into beekeeping. And without asking or telling me, he simply ordered a beginner's kit, which started showing up from UPS about a week later. So I uh, reached out and, and I, I actually thought the bees were in those boxes with all the woodware. I was so completely uninformed. And um, anyways, he sent me a package, which was seven days in the mail, miraculously the queen and about a third of the colony survived. And um, that was the beginning. I caught a swarm that year and I decided I was gonna do everything uh, chemically free. Uh, so all I did was powder them with powdered sugar for the first year, year and a half. And of course, I lost both hives the following year. And I was just devastated. But I realized how much I had enjoyed it and decided I needed to be very aggressive about my education and to learn everything I could about mites and the bee diseases. And so I ordered two more packages, jumped back in, and I've been doing it ever since. How many colonies are you at right now? Um, I have actually whittled it down. I got up to 27 and that was just way too much when I was trying to juggle farm chickens house, uh, my work for the farmer's market and all the business, uh, administrative business stuff that goes with that. So I started reading about how I can get lots of honey off of fewer hives. And I'm gonna try double screen boards this year and see how much I can get off of six hives with one as a resource hive. So I've got seven right now. Yeah, that's really neat. I love the fact that your your mentor sent you a hive. That's really cool. <laughs> like it it was story. just an amazing start. He is an incredibly generous uh, person. And that was just such, it's the greatest gift anybody could have given me because without sounding cliched, it truly changed my life. That's really exciting. And you had mentioned in your answer too about the farmer's market administrative uh, work around that. So that's really what we want to dive into you or dive in with you about this topic in this particular you know, podcast episode. And for our friends around the world who are listening to this particular podcast, they may not be familiar with the term farmer's market here in the U.S. We know exactly what that is. But if you could describe for us what a farmer's market is, kind of first, and then talk a little bit about how you started selling products at them. Absolutely. Uh, farmer's markets uh, here in the States are basically generally an outdoor event 
where local small businesses, primarily farmers, but also uh, crafters, woodworkers, potters, artists, all come together uh, to sell in a, in a localized uh, location, for lack of a better word, usually outdoor on a street, sometimes um, out in a park, and they usually last a half a day or a full day. Okay, so how I got started selling at the, uh, at the farmer's market was, it was a personal journey. I, I actually got very sick in 2017 and it's an autoimmune disease that required me to change my life, change my lifestyle and minimize stress. And so in that course of trying to determine how I was gonna reinvent myself, I looked at the things in my life that challenged me the most and gave me the greatest joy. And that was a very simple answer, it was the bees. So in not wanting to ruin that, I, it's, it's a sad commonality in life that oftentimes we take our hobbies and when we make them our businesses, we rob them of, or rob it of its joy. And I did not wanna do that. So I looked at all my skill sets that I'd amassed over the years. I've worked uh, in marketing and sales and graphic design my whole life. And in sitting over a cup of coffee with a friend who had formerly worked at farmer's market, she kind of tossed the idea out and it was a perfect fit. It was the, the proverbial light bulb over my head where I realized that that would almost certainly work for me. So I um, started doing homework and thank God for the internet because I learned virtually everything I needed to know by Googling soap recipes and honey soap recipes and how to find bottles for my honey. And um, it, it was just a, an exploration in what I could make and sell locally um, to earn a living. So Beth, would you, would you define yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? I am an introvert by nature, <laughs> but I, I can um, become an extrovert at will. I know that's a crazy answer. <laughs> well, let, well, let me tell you why I asked that. So I'm, yeah. I'm very much an introvert, despite what yeah. people think about me. And when I started keeping bees when I was young and, in, and through my teenager years, my, my parents wanted me to offload all this honey that I was producing. And so farmers markets were kind of involved in my my teenage life but I just couldn't do it it was so oh. hard for me because I sit at a table right. all these folks come by and look <laughs> at you and my introvert radars were just going off and I'm like right. man I just can't do this and the fact that you were very successful at it, that's why I thought I would ask kind of what what type of person because it kind of takes a person <laughs> who's an outgoing person to be able to do this well so it I, absolutely I does yeah, it absolutely does. I and I'm I'm not ashamed. There's part of me that's ashamed to say this, and there's a part of me that's proud to say this. So you you guys work out the psychology of that. The driving force for me is my profit, right. and so it, it it pushes me to push myself. I, I'm also I'm very good with people. I love interacting with people for short periods of time. It just takes its toll. So again, that's why the farmers market is perfect because I get to sit home. I'm sitting here right now in sweatpants and fuzzy slippers. And that's what I work <laughs> in most of the time. <laughs> but I, for, so I get six and a half days out of the week that I am by myself with my bees in my garden, visiting with Jerry, drinking coffee, working, working, working. And then for four hours, I have to flip a switch and I go into high gear and I go to the market and it's physically very taxing too. I'm, I'm getting old, I'm 60, almost 64 years old. And I do this by myself. So it's, um, it's, it's actually about six hours between setup, working and, and breakdown. And by the time I come home, I, you can just put a pin in me. I am done because, you know, psychologically, I've just had, I've been on for four hours selling my product, hearing, I, I mean, you're, you're also kind of like the bartender. I, I know a lot of my customers very well. I had one of my favorite customers come up last week and we mourned the loss of her cat last week. So um, it's very taxing, but then I get to go home and get back into my sweatpants and my soft fuzzy slippers and wind down for another six and a half days. Beth, you're really selling the life, Jamie. I don't know. I think I may just be, I may be, done retire. <laughs> I may be done with this podcast gig and just go and make products and sell at a market. No, you know, I really truly feel like Beth is underselling the work that it takes to go to a market because it does take a lot of work. 
um, you know, kind of transitioning into the products, right? And so you do have to work to sell your product. You do have to work to market your product. So there's a right. lot more, I will say, than it is to just talk to people for four hours. A week. You, you are absolutely correct. And it's not just the work that goes into making the products. It's also the work in trying to strike a balance with the rest of your life, just like you guys do with a, a more conventional job. Um, but it's, it's, it's my biggest challenge is not to go down the rabbit hole. I mean, I like this afternoon, I'm going to spend the afternoon doing sales tax when what I really want to do is go out and check the bees and go uncover my garden and so on and so forth. So um, it's challenging uh, to strike that balance. But you are absolutely right. The work that goes into making the products and not just making the products, but coming up with new things mm -hmm. all the time because you can't just sell the same things over and over every week. Right. So that actually leads me into my next question was, you know, I've, I've seen you through the process. I've seen the products that you've made. You kind of mentioned soap earlier and honey soaps earlier. Can you describe a little bit more about what type of products you sell? And then, you know, how do you decide what new products you want to bring and how do you decide what does sell best at a market? Those are really good questions because those are the questions I have to ask myself before I, I start down a new path with a new product. Um, because I'm a beekeeper, my primary um, theme at my booth is bees, honeybees, wax, honey. Any, I, basically, I started by making only things that had or that used honey and, and beeswax. And that was edibles or uh, cosmetic products. And so that was things like soap, balms, butters, uh, body butters, um, and foodstuffs. I make every single week. You can tell I'm getting tired of this. I make baklava and I make honey caramels. And so I've tried to branch out from just selling my bottled honey. I also started making creamed honey. And last year, um, with the help of a dear friend that I mentor in beekeeping, she turned me on to doing uh, infused honeys, where I infuse certain spices or savory flavors into the honey. And those are, those are big sellers. But a lot of the choices for what I make are driven by my market. I'm very fortunate. I only work the one market. A lot of people, like this gal that I mentioned before, her name is Holly, and she's over in the St. Augustine area. Uh, she works probably 12 or 15 markets a year. And it's, that's a completely different mm -hmm. uh, paradigm than what I do where I go to the same market every week and I have the same booth and I have the same customers. So uh, really different demands uh, on us. There's about a thousand follow-ups I have. I about what you just said. But I'll be honest with you, you had me at baklava. <laughs> because... <laughs> Have you had it, Jamie? I it's love, very I've good. I have not had bets, but I absolutely love baklava. And so oh my gosh. I, I'm like intrigued to taste yours, Beth. But but Beth, you're sitting here. So I'm I've I've never taken any business courses at all in my lifetime. I'm a hundred percent scientist here. So yeah. I think about migrating markets. You mentioned your friend who goes to 12 to 15 different markets a year, and you you work specifically one, so you know what your customers want. But you know. The sales, you know, we got people listening from around the world. So is is every so I guess I've got a few questions that are kind of off the script. Is is every market a hundred percent unique? In other words, farmers market in town A, the highest demands for honey. Farmers market in town B, the highest demand is for foodstuffs made with honey. Farmers market in town C, the greatest demand is for body products, lip balm, soaps, do, is, do you find that or do folks yeah. kind of universally want what they want? Oh, no, absolutely. They're all quite unique. Actually, we've got uh, two markets in Gainesville, the one uh, that I attend, which is Hale Plantation. And then there's another one up on uh, 441. And I applied to and was accepted to both. And after going to both, it was a no brainer that I was going to be better suited with my products at the Hale market, because the Hale market has a greater diversity of crafters, artists, artisans. It was, it's much more diverse. It's more like a street fair or an arts and crafts fair coupled with the farmer's market. The farmer's market up at 441 is primarily food and produce. So if I were just selling honey, that would be a fantastic market for me because everybody's coming there primarily for food. 
um, because I'm such a small backyard beekeeper and I only have honey at certain times of the year, I needed more diversity on my table. So I needed a more diverse market. So if you're looking to get into farmer's market, it will really behoove you to attend many different markets in your area to find the best fit for you and for the products that you're thinking about selling. If you're heavily honey, you're gonna look for one that's heavily produce oriented uh, and vice versa. If you're more into uh, crafting or diversity there. I think that's really, really good advice. I'd never thought about doing essentially market research and customer research at markets before you decide to sell them. And so you're suggesting then visiting them, seeing what what their theme is and making sure yep. that your products fit within that theme. And, and so I know that this question I'm about to ask you won't be universal amongst folks who sell hive products and honey art and all that stuff at farmer's markets. But like in your case, is are your sales 50-50 consumables versus other products? Or are they, I mean, what, what's the breakdown of what works well specifically for you? It actually varies throughout the year. Honey, honey sales are always my top sellers. Um, I switched the, and, and we'll probably get to this later, but I do take credit cards. So I switched last year to using a different uh, format and a different app. And it, it gives me breakdown of my sales in detail, which has been so helpful. Um, and I didn't really think that honey was going to be my top seller, but it absolutely is. If you combine uh, raw honey, creamed honey, infused honey, and then some of my, I put together some gift baskets that include honey. Those are always my top three to four sellers out of the top five that the, that the report gives me. During um, the Christmas season, my crafty things usually outsell honey. Um, just because everybody's looking for stocking stuffers and gift ideas. So Beth, you're talking about, you know, just the money that you're bringing in and from all the different products you have. I know that when you sell at farmer's market, sometimes you have to pay a fee to be part of that market. You know, I don't know how common that is, um, you know, the price range of what those are. But I also know that there are some rules and regulations uh, related to selling products. So could you talk a little bit about rules and regulations with farmers markets? I mean, are these rules specific to edible items or is it, you know, related to um, all the other value-added products that you're talking about? Yeah, good question. Um, there are absolutely fees for all the markets. There are, um, those fees vary depending on the type of event it is. If it's a weekly market, there's usually a set fee and that can range anywhere from $15 a day to $50 a day, depending on your market. There are also annual and biannual events, like there's a wonderful market, a uh, big event down in uh, Macintosh, where a lot of the farmer's market vendors will attend. And those fees are significantly higher uh, because there are single or, or dual events throughout the year. Those can run 150 uh, to get into those. So that's gonna vary. Um, there are absolutely rules in, and I'm only familiar with the two markets uh, that I've vended at, but the, the common rules are that you can't re-wholesale. It's like, I can't just go and buy honey and bottle it up and, and re-wholesale it. They actually want working farms at their, at their markets. And they, um, when I say they, most farmers markets are governed by a board of directors. They're usually an LLC with a board of directors. And when I first started vending at Hale, they actually sent one of the board members out to inspect my, my apiary and to confirm that I am in fact a beekeeper. And I'm really glad that they do that um, because there could be folks that would be, that would misrepresent themselves and it, it protects the customers um, to ensure that they are in fact getting uh, locally grown or locally produced products. And there are um, a few other rules and regs and that's gonna vary market by market. I know that um, Holly just had to get a county business license, I believe when she was vending over in St. John's County to be able to attend some of their markets. Alachua County does not require that. And it's sort of a, a just a localized business license. Um, at, at my market, you do not have to be a, an incorporated business. You can just be a sole proprietor who comes out with your produce. Um, so uh, anybody basically can come and vend. Um, we do in fact have to follow the cottage food industry laws 
uh, when it comes to hunting. So I have to uh, include specific information on my labels that tells my customers that my honey was not bottled in a commercial kitchen, that it was bottled basically in my kitchen, and that I am following cottage food industry protocol when I, when I prepare and bottle my honey to sell. Well, that's a lot of stuff. I keep thinking if I had to do this and look into all of that, I mean, it's, I guess the, the place to start is you go to the farmer's market that you decide that you want to sell at, and then you ask whoever the administrators are, what are some of the rules and regulations related to that? But some of this other stuff, like business licenses and things like that, I mean, do, do you have to carry insurance and, and all of that? Some markets do require that you carry insurance. My market does not. Um, some, some farmer's markets will actually provide an umbrella policy that you can buy into. Again, Hale does not, uh, but things like uh, Riverwalk over in Jacksonville, they require insurance and they require that um, you have a, a liability policy either through them or, or that you take out on your own through a private entity. And um, it, it just, I would imagine that the folks that are at higher risk um, in terms of the, if they're strictly a food seller, like the, I know there's a gentleman who sells a locally uh, grown and produced meat and dairy products, and he carries a heavy uh, insurance policy, which is quite smart. Um, so it's all going to depend on what you're selling. I have a, a good deal of protection under my LLC. Um, so you're going to you're going to want to make some decisions as you're getting into the farmers market based on what you're selling and what your liability might be to determine whether or not you want to incorporate, whether or not you want to carry insurance. And you uh, certainly want to check with your, uh, your board of directors there at the farmer's market or whoever the administrative body is to find out what they require. And they'll provide that. You, most farmer's markets require that you fill out a very detailed application because they're investing in you uh, as they bring you into their market. So Beth, that's a great answer when you talk about some of these other considerations. I, I want to follow up a little bit with things like credit cards versus cash and bad weather and public relations at the stand. If you've ever had these kinds of issues you've had to deal with. Absolutely. That, that's all part of doing business. Um, there are folks at farmers markets that take cash only. And um, I have discovered that if I do that, I cut myself out of almost two thirds of my profit base. So taking credit cards is a no brainer. It's just the cost of doing business, the, the uh, fee that's charged. And there are wonderful options for, for small business owners. Um, and I, I don't know if it's appropriate to plug anybody, but there are multiple apps and options and you just need to go and shop for who has the best rate and what app is gonna work best with your brain because they're all a little bit different, um, but they're all user-friendly and you can basically use either an iPad or a cell phone to, um, to make your sales, so it's wonderful. And um, in terms of other considerations at the market, uh, weather is a huge consideration. Um, because you're out there in the elements. So you have to decide uh, what your products can stand up to. Mine, because I am um, only using an inkjet printer and all my labels are completely destroyed if I get wet, I don't go vend on rainy days. Um, it's just not worth it. I've, I've done it a couple of days. I've had total losses. So even with a tent uh, in good shape, you still can can lose your product in bad weather. I also don't vend when it's under 32 degrees because it's just too darn cold. Um, there are also wonderful um, tools for the trade. There are weights you can put on your tent to keep it from blowing away in gusty days. So um, I've learned more than anything from the other vendors. And this ties right back in with uh, going to visit farmers markets before you ever even get started. Um, every farmers market is different. The, the makeup of the market is different. And um, I, I have learned so much from the other vendors. I, I, learned, I learned about the particular app I use for my credit card from one of my neighbors. Um, I learned about the weights for my table or for my, uh, for my tent from my neighbors. So it's really important that you, that you find a really good mix for you and your personality and your strengths and weaknesses, because it really does become a family. 
Gosh, I love this story that you're telling about this. It's just really intriguing how it all comes together and really gives you a lot of faith in farmers markets as, 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 as much attention to detail they seem to pay. So let's, let's talk about it on the marketing standpoint, right? A lot of times we know that honey sells itself, honeybee sells themselves because it's such a popular topic, but there's still some things that you can do to make your display and your product just pop. So what are some pointers that you have on how to prepare a good product and an attractive display for the consumer at farmer's markets? Absolutely. Good question. Um, my rule of thumb is that I set my booth up so that it is essentially a self-serve booth. Signage, signage is very, very important so that when folks walk up to the booth, they get answers uh, immediately, even if I'm not there. They, they can find out what's in my product. They can find out uh, the price of my product. And um, that, that I don't have to be there. Now, selling is a critical part of it. Like I said, you, you, the more you develop a relationship with your customers, um, I think the more successful you're going to be because this is a very intimate experience at a farmer's market. This is, this is people who, I, I got six Christmas gifts this year from my customers, people who were just so kind and so thoughtful and, and brought me a book or a mug or you know, a beautiful scarf. It, it just blew my mind. So um, forming that relationship is, is imperative. But signage is very important. Um, color, believe it or not, is very important. And keeping things clean and tidy on your booth. Uh, one of the things that I do every single week is that I constantly keep that table full. I want it to look exactly the same at the end of the day as I do at the beginning of the day. I don't ever want to look like I'm completely sold out. That was a lesson I learned many years ago in retail, that when the booth looks full and robust, uh, it just creates a sense of, of fullness and availability. And it, 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 for whatever reason, it increases your sales. I'm sure there's some marketing research behind that, but it has certainly uh, proven out at my booth. And um, it, it's a silly thing to say, but you need to create enough white space on your table that people can see things. You don't want it so jumbled that people can't distinguish one product from another. And those are that all comes from my years in marketing. It kind of translates from the page to the table. I was just about to say, it seems like your marketing background really helps um, with your display because I've seen your display and it is gorgeous and it looks really great. And I know that every time I'm at a farmer's market, you know, good displays attract just so many people. So I think that's really important. Yeah, there's no question about that. I, I actually get comments almost weekly from folks who say, oh my gosh, your booth is so pretty. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to sound sexist here, but the majority of my customers are female. So, and again, I hate to be so stereotypical, but if it's pretty or cute, it helps it sell. So I, I bear that in mind as I'm doing my packaging. So you've, you've mentioned a lot of things that people need to take into consideration, you know, when considering selling at a farmer's market, some of the rules and regulations. I think you gave great pointers on how to prepare a good product and an attractive display. What other considerations um, do you think people may need to know about related to selling at a farmer's market? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you're going to want to consider your travel time. I, I Again, and you're going to want to think about whether you want to be mobile or whether you want to be anchored at a specific market. Um, I travel about 45 miles to get to my market every week. Um, so that's something I have to, to keep in mind as I'm doing my bookkeeping. Um, I guess another thing too, is you're going to want to consider how much administrative work you want to get into. Uh, and that's going to drive uh, your choices into how you incorporate yourself. As I said, I'm getting ready to sit down and do my sales tax this afternoon. I used to be an S Corp. I actually closed that down uh, because I simply didn't want to have to do payroll and all that paperwork. Um, you're also going to want to consider how big you want to get. You're going to want to consider whether or not you want to have a uh, companion website and whether or not you want to have an Etsy shop. You're going to want to think about how much social media uh, time you're, you're willing to put in every week because that's imperative. 
Um, I'm that's where I'm my weakest. I'm very good about Facebook. I have never gotten into Twitter. I don't have an Etsy shop. And I could absolutely increase my sales and my consumer base if I were willing to do that. Holly is spectacular. My, my friend who bends over in uh, St. Augustine, she's terrific at using social media uh, to grow her customer base and awareness about her products. And I think if you're serious about doing this, that's a, an avenue you absolutely want to utilize is social media. Yeah. So I wanted to finish off with one more question. And I was just wondering, you know, at what point, I know that you had mentioned that you do everything yourself. So at what point would you consider, or do you even want to consider hiring on help at the, at the market or with any product development? You know, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I've, I've faced that a couple of times myself. And at my age, I have opted not to grow uh, the company because you add a, a huge layer of responsibility and work when you bring folks in, but you also free yourself up um, by dividing the labor. It, it just depends on how much you want to grow. Uh, and that's the question you have to ask yourself. I sat down and did the math. And if I bring on an employee I looked at the numbers and I was going to have to go to two other farmers markets to be able to pay for uh, an employee and the attendant costs there. And I'm at my age, I'm not willing to go that if I were 20 years younger, I would probably have employees. All right, Beth, you know, I've learned so much about your interaction and your time at the farmer's market, what it takes to go into a farmer's market. And it's, it seems like a lot of, a lot of work and I'm sure it's very rewarding, but I was wondering, um, you know, if you had any other thoughts or any other recommendations for beekeepers out there who wanted to, uh, delve into the world of farmer's markets. Oh gosh, I wish I had a, a magic wand to, to give you the perfect answer for that. But I think the most important thing is just as silly as this sounds, just be true to yourself. Look at your own strengths, your own skill sets, um, and look at the things that make you happy and try and govern your choices by that. Get to know your market um, and try and strike some balance in your life between work and play and make sure you leave plenty of time for your business. taken into consideration before speaking with her. You know, one of the things that struck me while she was talking, Amy, is we could just about make a podcast episode out of every facet, like knowing know. your audience, you know, the rules and regulations of farmers marketing. When you think about taxes and uh, incorporating and maybe liability and stuff like that. And then so, so <laughs> hitting the right customer, the background mm -hmm. research, all of these, the whole time she was talking about, good gracious, that would make by itself an episode that would be very valuable to just dive into, because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who are going, man, I could do this. I could do this. Right. And there's, there's these types of markets literally around the world. So if you're listening to us from another country, hopefully you learned something in that process from Beth, that would really just give you good ideas on how to move forward. But yeah, Amy, it was a really neat conversation. I know. I mean, even I think from the consumer standpoint, you know, I think after that episode, I'll, I'll go to farmer's market and know, like, I know that they are hard workers, of course. And I know that they have their products, but I didn't realize, you know, that some markets will go and visit their apiary just to confirm, right. Just to make sure that what they're saying they do is, is real and legitimate. Yeah. That was one of the neatest things I think that she said that really caught me off, off guard. I like that idea. It's like, look, if we're going to have a farmer's market, and we're going to say that we do these things, then we need to make sure that those who are vending at these markets really are who they say they are. And it's neat that there are markets who kind of employ the test and confirm strategy just to make sure that their products are authentic and represent local fare. And I just really like that. I like that idea. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So I think moving forward, you know, we'll bring in other beekeepers that are also um, making money with bees somehow. And, you know, I think we'll just I'm excited to hear from some of the other guests that we have out there as well. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. 
Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, the first question has to do with banking queens. And this is from the perspective of a hobby beekeeper with limited resources. They're wondering what are some recommended methods for banking queens and how long can a queen be banked for before she's no longer viable? So maybe let's talk about what that even means, banking queens. Yeah, this is going to be a tricky answer. And the reason it's going to be a tricky answer is because the results from banking studies vary pretty significantly. So let's just kind of start from the top and work our way down. Banking is essentially holding on to mated queens when you do not need them so that you can have them available when you do need them. And the premise is really simple. You keep a queen in a cage and that cage is secured such that bees from a hive cannot eat through candy and release her. In other words, she's in that cage and cannot be released by the bees. And then you put that queen in that cage in that hive and the bees will take care of her and keep her alive until you need her later. Now, banking works best when, ca when these caged queens are placed into very strong colonies. Because and, and the reason this question is additionally tricky because they're wanting to do this potentially maybe you know throughout winter or other times of the year. And so it gets so difficult. So let's just think about it this way. There are studies out there where people have looked at how long queens can be banked. In fact, I'm looking at a refereed manuscript right now that was published in 2022 to answer this question. And they, they essentially did this. Interestingly enough, they did it over winter. And what they found is that they could bank queens for six months what? over winter. Yeah, it's crazy. So basically, they had some colonies that received 40 banked queens, in other words, 40 queens in cages, and some colonies that had 80 queens in cages. And 74% of the ones from the 40 queen colonies survived six months over winter. But in the 80 queen colonies, only 42% survived. So let's let's put this back down in terms that, that, I, that I can understand. Basically, they had these colonies that they would put 40 queens into and these colonies that they would put 80 queens into. And they would see if those colonies could keep those queens alive in those cages over winter for a period of six months. In the 40 queen colonies, they got 74% survival. In the 80 queen colonies, they got 42% survival. So this says, hey, look, yeah, you can get three quarters of your queens banked over winter for six months in colonies if you are at 40 or fewer queens in those colonies. And you mentioned that you're a hobbyist beekeeper, so you're probably never going to want to bank that many queens. But when you read this study, they had a couple of things going in their favor. Number one, these colonies were very strong. They used double deeps, two deep brood boxes. They were absolutely full of brood. I think they said they tried to have at least 16 frames of brood to ensure that they had a lot of bees in there to take care of those queens. And then there were lots of bees in those boxes and you're going to want that because if the bees, if the cluster ever pulls away from the banked queens, those queens will starve to death. So it's remarkable to me that they were able to get three quarters of the queens to survive a six right. month overwintering period. Now I said earlier that it looks like the questioner was asking about overwintering. They're not asking about overwintering. I, I forgot that the study was dealing with overwintered bank queens, but the questioner is just saying banking in general. Well, I will say under these harsh conditions, they were able to get 75% of their queens to live six months, which I think is pretty remarkable. And then they took these queens and they looked at sperm quantity and quality to see if it was any different from queens that were not banked. And they found there were no differences. So the, the banked queens, those queens that are in these cages for this mm -hmm. period of time, unable to lay, their, their sperm was sufficiently alive and sufficient quality to where they could be used later. And then they put these queens into colonies and found out that the first few weeks of their lives, they were not their, their escaped <laughs> lives. They were not able to lay as many eggs as the queens that were never banked, but they had rationalized that it wouldn't take very long for their ovaries to redevelop, re re-mature, re and then be able to keep up with egg laying similar to what they were seeing in the unbanked colonies. But they make the statement in their discussion that this isn't true across all banking situations. So the mm -hmm. question is saying, how long is it possible? Well, it depends on the study. This study here says it's possible up to six months or longer. Um, and it looks like you can reuse those queens, but you should expect at least 25% or so mortality if you do that for a long period of time. 
Um, but but the keys are lots of brood in those colonies, lots of bees in those colonies, and you really want to make sure that there's plenty of those. And you also don't want to over overstock the number of queens. So I would right. say if 40 is good, I would say 20 or fewer is even better. But you really want to make sure that there's lots of bees available to take care of those queens. And you should you should be able to bank them that way for a few months or longer. So I've got a couple of questions just as far as, you know, from the hobby beekeeper perspective. So let's say a typical hobby beekeeper has 10 to 20 colonies, right? And so mm -hmm. if they're banking queens, when they're banking queens, I assume it's just going to be like double the amount, right? You probably don't want to like triple the amount unless you have that many queens, that's fine. But um, when you have them banked and you have them in these cages, in that colony itself to keep it strong, is there one queen that's just kind of walking around and laying eggs and doing what you normally do, or are they all all caged together? So generally speaking, there is a queen running around in the nest. Now you can create queenless queen banks. And by mm -hmm. queenless, the fact that the colony itself is queenless, even though there's you know 20 or 30 queens banked in it, there's no free running queen. But I would argue the longer that you're going to want to bank these things, the more you need that free running queen. Now, the free running queen can be tricky right? because I've, I've in some of our own experimental colonies years and years ago, we were creating queen banks and queenless colonies, but one of our queen cages wasn't secured and the queen got out, mated, laying, and she started laying. And once they had her, they neglected the bees. The yeah. But what these researchers did is they didn't bank queens the way that we did. And I'm just going to kind of give you two ways that it's done. If you've got this, let's just imagine you've got this double deep brood box. It's absolutely full of bees and brood. Okay. So what we were doing years ago is we would put, we'd take off the lid of the hive. We'd put an empty shallow super or medium super on top of the uppermost deep box. And then we would just scatter our queen cages on top of the frames on that upper deep box and those queen cages kind of were, were within the walls of that medium super. And then we put the lid back on the hive. The way these researchers did it is they modified a frame that could hold queen cages. And they put that frame smack in the middle of the brood nest. And that's where they were getting their success rate pretty high. Well, that's pretty cool. I am fascinated by queens and banking queens and the whole concept. So very, very interesting. Okay, so for the next question that we have, this listener was asking about providing sunflower seed meal, um, it's a powder, uh, providing this as a source of food for honeybees. And so this person had noticed uh, last January on an unusually warm day in the 60 degree range, 60 degree Fahrenheit range, that honeybees had swarmed around the screen of a sunflower seed bird feeder. So it looked like the bees were eating the dust left over from the birds that were consuming the seeds and they just loved it. So is that, a, is that something that beekeepers should or can or provide to honeybees or do honeybees like to eat sunflower seed meal? Well, it's funny that you asked that. So honeybees have been seen collecting all kinds of dust, protonaceous dust, as well mm -hmm. as dust that aren't very protein rich. And it almost always happens in the absence of other pollen available in the environment. So by the time you see them visiting bird feeders, I've heard animal troughs where there's corn seed in it as example. You know, by the time bee, honeybees are visiting this, these things, that tells you that there's very little pollen available in the environment and they are mistaking these things for pollen. So I don't think it's very good for honeybees at all. In fact, I'd love to see a study where people follow their use of this stuff. Not only do they collect it, but they, presumably they take it back to the hive and store it as bee bread, but are they able to convert it to something that's meaningful in the nest? And are they able to rear young off of it? And I'm curious to see those results. And so what I would argue is, no, I'm the answer to the question directly. I've never provided sunflower seed meal as a food source for honeybees. If I wanted to provide a powder to them, at a time of the year that they were not um, otherwise getting pollen, or if I wanted to divert them from animal troughs or bird feeders where they're collecting these dust, I would actually just put out pod, uh, dry pollen sub. We actually do that here at the University of Florida Bee Lab for research purposes, but uh, I know a lot of beekeepers who during the late fall and winter months, since their bees want to go forage and collect some sort of dust that they prefer to use, these beekeepers will put out dry pollen subs. So you usually can buy pollen sub dry 
at the manufacturer mm -hmm. or pre-mixed these kind of patty forms you wouldn't buy them pre-mixed you just buy the dry pollen sub put it in some kind of container where rain and humidity are kept out of and you'll notice that bees will forage and collect that now it's an equally good question are they using it like pollen if they collect that stuff that way as well but but in the very least i would say I cannot imagine that they're getting a tremendous amount of nutrition if they're having to go forage from, you know, sunflower dust right. that they're getting from bird feeders or corn dust that they're getting from animal troughs. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right. So for the third question that we have, all right. So this person's from Massachusetts and they have two colonies. Um, in the fall, they had both of their bees dying. And so their inspector sent samples out. They had CBPV. So I'll let you tell our listeners what CBPV <laughs> is. Okay. And so they have a lot of questions. Okay. So they found out that they had CBPV. And so Jamie, I just wanted to ask you like, what is CBPV? And can you Tell us a little bit about it. This person was specifically asking, how do you deal with it as a beekeeper? You know, is, I assume it's a virus. So how do they get this virus? And maybe let's talk a little bit about CBPV, what that is and what to do. So CBPV is chronic bee paralysis virus. It's just the acronym for that. And we, we do that a lot in the honeybee virus world, right? DWV is the form wing virus. IAPV is Israeli acute paralysis virus. ABPV is acute bee paralysis virus. It's just so one of those many things. acronyms. Yeah, this is one of those things that we do. So chronic bee paralysis virus is one of the viruses that bees get. And it causes signs of illness similar to what you see for some of the other viruses. Not necessarily like what you see for deformed wing virus because deformed wing virus deforms the wings of bees or sac brood virus because it kills brood. But a lot of the other viruses that affect adult bees have these kind of characteristic signs of an infection that I'll share with you now. So they include, you know, abnormal trembling where the bees just kind of shake. Often they're unable to fly. They're very often shiny and they're shiny not because they've all of a sudden are super glossy or whatever they're shiny because they're losing their hair and you're seeing directly the the plates that makes up make up the exoskeleton of the bee so they lose their hair they get this shiny appearance some of them can look kind of greasy in appearance as well so to restate these trembling bees flightlessness you get shiny bees due to them being hairless you'll often get these bees wandering away from the hive crawling up blades of grass on the outside of the hive, unable to fly. So these are things that beekeepers can easily see. And if the infection's heavy enough, colonies can die from it. Individuals certainly do die from it. And you can get piles of dead bees outside of the nest, but you can lose entire colonies or colonies will get too weak for pollination or honey production, or maybe they'll be now susceptible to other things. The problem with chronic bee paralysis virus is that like a lot of the other viruses, there's not currently a whole lot that you can do for it, right? Some of the recommendations that mm -hmm. come out of it are just like the recommendations that this beekeeper said that they were told. Oftentimes when a colony has chronic bee paralysis virus or any other number of bee viruses, one of the first explanations is, hey, look, you know, bees that are getting it must be susceptible to it. And if they're susceptible to it, it's because the queen is passing on susceptible genes. So let's just requeen them. A lot of times you'll see bees kind of pull out of these viruses. If you're getting a strong nectar flow or pollen flow, they tend to outpace the disease in their nest. And then over time, they can take care of themselves. Many viruses get kind of lumped under the umbrella of we don't exactly know the role Varroa may play in their transmission, but let's just assume that they play a role in their transmission. So let's make sure Varroa are controlled. So, so when we talk about controlling viruses, it almost always sounds like requeen your colony, mm -hmm. control Varroa, make sure your bees are otherwise strong and healthy, feed them if necessary. But if, if it gets bad enough, usually if the colony dwindles, a lot of beekeepers will just cut their losses and let the colony die and they'll save the equipment to use later. Some beekeepers not necessarily recognizing why the colony's dwindling might combine it with another hive. There's just no like treatment I can tell you to run out and right. put in the nest to solve the problem. So, you know, like many other bee viruses, we don't know quite as much about it as we we talk about it maybe at meetings, but, but its spread is probably the standard ways of viral spread among colonies, which is bees sharing food with one another, maybe the fecal oral route when they're defecating and moving feces around. Um, they 
possibly acquire it when they're robbing other colonies that are weakened, where they visit some of the same flowers that sick bees visit. There's just a lot of routes, potential routes of transmission that need to be explored, both for chronic bee paralysis virus, but also <laughs> for that matter, a lot of the other viruses. Right. Right. I, uh, you know, I hate going to meetings. I love going to meetings, but I uh -oh, hate, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, let me, I, I love going to meetings, but I hate when someone asks me, you know, why, why can we not get rid of viruses? You know, I hate being the bearer of bad news to basically say there's not much we can do right now, except to try to control Varroa, right? There's no cure. And so I hate when I have to tell that to beekeepers is what I meant to preface that as. So, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see the scientific world and, and what research focuses on viruses, I think in the future. So, well, so, I mean, it's, it's worth thinking, you know, like in my own case, if I saw this in my colony, what would I do? Well, if the colony was very strong, I would probably give it bees or brood from another colony to see if I could, you know, boost, boost them out of this right. problem. If I thought it was a big problem and the colony was strong, I might queen it. But if they're super weak, you know, I might just let, you know, there's not, you can't rescue the individual bees. So you might just let the colony go and I'd store the equipment for use later, which begs the question, well, how long is long enough to wait? I would say if you, if they died from a suspected virus in fall, then you could save the equipment and have bees on it in spring and probably be okay. People haven't worked out the quota shelf life right. of these viruses. How much longer can it remain infected? Um, and the questioner asked further down, you know, if I've got frames of honey from this colony that I saved while it was dwindling, can I give it back to another colony later? Well, probably, but the question is, is how long is long enough to be later? I personally feel comfortable a few months later, but there's no research to support that. It's just kind of my anecdotal understanding of how viruses work. So there's a lot of this stuff that has to be worked out because beekeepers ask these questions all the time. I think a virus killed my bees. How can I clean my equipment? How long do I have to wait before I use more that can use it again? All right, listeners. Well, if you have any follow-up questions from today's Q&A, don't forget to send us an email or message us on one of our social media pages. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.